Welcome to the A-Level Politics Show, episode 11. I am Nick D'Souza, your host, and today we are going to be talking about democracy in the UK. More specifically, is there a democratic deficit? What does that mean? We're going to be discussing that. Um, And this will be part one of a two-part series that will be focusing on democracy in the UK. Part two will be coming out shortly, and that will be about what we can do to fix the flaws in UK democracy. But today we're going to be assessing what those flaws are, how democratic is the UK, is the UK in crisis, is there a democratic deficit? Stand by, because that is what we're going to be discussing. So what is a democratic deficit? Neil McNaughton refers to a democratic deficit as features of the political system which do not conform to or fall short of the normal criteria for a true democracy. What does that mean? Well, it means that in any democracy, you have certain pillars, certain tenants, certain things about that democracy that you hold dear. It could be fair elections, for example. And then you look at that and assess whether they are truly fair. So what we are going to be doing is looking at several key features of UK democracy and deciding whether actually they actually work. So the first one we're going to be looking at is pluralism. Then we're going to be looking at the supposed free and fair elections in the UK. We're going to be examining parliamentary democracy. We're going to be looking at this concept of liberal democracy and whether it exists in the UK. We're going to be examining direct democracy and its use in the UK. Um, We're also going to be looking at devolution and whether that has made the UK more democratic. And finally, we're going to be looking at participation rates. And now there is an entire podcast on participation in the UK. So we're going to be covering a small chunk of it here. But if you want... Um, an essay question on the participation crisis and whether there is one, uh, look for an earlier podcast in your podcast feed. Um, So stand by again, because after the break, we're going to be talking about uh, pluralism um, and we're going to be talking about free and fair elections and parliamentary democracy before the next break. See you next time. Well, see you after the jingles. So as we were saying, there are several features of democracy in the UK which supposedly or are supposed to prevent a democratic deficit or a crisis in democracy. Number one, there is pluralism. The thing to understand about pluralism is that it is a theory and we have to examine whether it actually truly exists. Now, Firstly, what is pluralism? It means that power lies in many different places. Power is not concentrated. Judges have power. Parliament has power. Prime ministers have power. The devolved bodies have power. You and I have power. And perhaps the best example of this is through the Article 50 decision. Article 50 being that mechanism by which the UK notifies the EU of its intention to leave the EU. Who was involved in that decision? The answer is many, many different groups. Um, We had millions of people voting in a referendum on it. We had a parliament voting on it. We had a prime minister trying to trigger it on it by itself. Uh, We had 
the Supreme Court weighing in and deciding who has the right to trigger Article 50. Um, and so all of those people are involved in that decision. So this example shows how no single person, group uh, or individual has too much power in the UK. However, as I said, pluralism is just a theory. And I've given an example of how you could argue that it exists in practice. However, the UK is far from having a healthy pluralist democracy. Arguably, power is instead concentrated in the hands of a few people and organisations. This is the theory of elitism and was shown by the dominance of the so-called Eton set in the Cameron government. The Eton set being uh, individuals who attended Eton and there were quite a lot of those individuals in the Cameron government. Furthermore, some pressure groups arguably are too powerful. For example, private healthcare companies had a huge influence on writing the Health and Social Care Act, which allows those very same companies, healthcare companies, access to provide operations on the NHS. So they were helping to write legislation that they would ultimately benefit from. Did they uh, have undue influence or too much influence? Um, arguably, yes. So there is an argument, therefore, to say that... Um, Pluralism doesn't really exist, and actually what we really have is elitism. Let's turn to the next key feature, feature number two, the idea that the UK has free and fair elections, which makes it democratic. And that means, uh, ultimately, what are free and fair elections? It means that election results are trusted. In addition, all adults can vote in the UK. If you're over 18, uh, you do have a right to vote. Um, so long as you are not in prison. After the 2017 general election, no political party questioned the vote share that Conservatives received or that Labour received. No one was saying, hey, that's a corrupt result. That wasn't really 42% uh, for the Conservatives, 40% for Labour. Um, people understood that the that was the share of the vote that the parties received. Um, however... The first-past-the-post electoral system is truly unfair and leads to what Lord Helsham described, usually, anyway, uh, described as an elected dictatorship. Um, and when I say usually, it's because first-past-the-post hasn't been producing elected dictatorship in the last few years, um, but it usually produces huge majorities, and that's what we're talking about. Uh, the winning party often enjoys a disproportionate share of seats. Um, the, compared to uh, what their vote share was. So the Conservatives won 30, 37% of the vote in 2015, but won 51% uh, of the seats in Parliament in 2015. There have been even more disproportional votes. Um, you, for example, you have uh, the 2005 um, victory for Labour. They only won 35% of the vote, uh, but they got 55% of the seats. It's called a winner's bonus. We're going to go into this in more details, uh, more detail uh, when we do a podcast on electoral systems and first past the post. Um, but ultimately, if you uh, win by one vote, then you win a seat uh, in that particular area. Um, so if you have managed to get lots of you know, concentration of votes in one area, you're going to be more likely to win it. And usually it's only Labour and Conservative that can get a concentration of uh, supporters in one area. 
places like uh, where I live, Streatham, uh, has you know a strong concentration of Labour supporters, and it is a safe Labour seat. Um, and there are many other safe Conservative seats. And what we mean by safe seats is that basically they're uncompetitive. Basically, we already know the winner um, pretty much uh, before the general election has started. Is this really fair? Are people being truly represented? Um, um, and my argument uh, is very strongly that they are not. But more on First Past the Post in the forthcoming podcast. We now move uh, to parliamentary democracy. We'll come to that after the break. The UK system is often described as a parliamentary democracy, which means that Parliament acts as the main check on governmental power, preventing the concentration of power. Parliament has increasingly limited the power of government in recent years. Reforms to the committee system through secret ballots for committee chairs and the creation of the Backbench Business Committee has resulted in better scrutiny of the executive. The phone hacking scandal, for example, was largely brought to the public's attention through the sound work of parliamentary committees, which revealed the close relationship between the press and the government. Furthermore, Parliament is a deliberative assembly that holds important debates and provides a forum for constituents to be res represented by their MPs. This all sounds great. However, in the UK, we have the fusion of powers. And this means that the executive is drawn from the parliament. It, the, the government sits in parliament and dominates it, affecting that all important scrutiny that is vital for a healthy parliamentary democracy. So therefore the fusion of powers hinders the parliamentary democracy. And I said um, in the previous section, of course, that the electoral system um, is unfair because it gives the government a disproportionate um, amount of seats in that parliament so if you have a government that has lots of seats in parliament it can dominate that parliament and therefore the scrutiny won't be as good now we don't necessarily have that situation right now because we have a hung parliament that means that no one party enjoys a majority uh, of the seats in um, the parliament nevertheless um, it has been the case um, for um, most of britain's post-war history that um Governments tend to have a majority and tend to be strong ones. Thatcher enjoyed uh, several strong majorities in, as, as well as Blair. Um, and that basically allows the executive, um, which is another word for government, to dominate the legislature, which is another word for parliament. The government can force through measures that have not been properly scrutinised. The, tw the 2016 Trade Union Act and the 2016 Investigatory Powers Act are both examples of laws that really fundamentally alter the rights of citizens and increase the power of government. Yet both of these laws passed relatively quickly uh, owing to the slim but still present Tory majority in 2016 that they had after the 2015 general election. Having two parties in coalition between 2010 and 2015 did little to prevent the government dominating the House of Commons. So you normally have a coalition when as you say, as I said, you have a hung parliament normally that you'd get two parties working together to produce a majority. But if those two parties get together and and combine numbers, sometimes those majorities can be very, very high. And in 2010, that was the case when the Liberal Democrats and Conservatives formed a coalition and they were able to pass quite important 
legislation in the five years that that coalition ran for. Witness how quickly the government pushed through plans on scrapping building schools for the future, a scheme to basically build lots of schools and develop um, um, old crumbling ones. The House of Lords as well is unelected. So if we're talking about true parliamentary democracy, we have to look at both chambers in Parliament and uh, one half of Parliament is completely unelected. Some peers um, are there because of um, their birth, uh, their hereditary. Not many more left now, only 92, but still we still have hereditary peers in the House of Lords. And that House of Lords is also weak. It can only delay legislation. And this weakness means that the government can push through its agenda relatively easily if it has a majority in the House of Commons. The Conservative government under David Cameron also tried to pack the Lords with over 200 of its own supporters, meaning it is less likely to stand up to the House of Commons. Now, that's not necessarily, let's not take that too far because um, the House of Lords is also a hung chamber, as in there's no one party that dominates and it has crossbenchers making that chamber pretty independent. Crossbenchers are peers that sit in the House of Lords that have no party allegiance. Nevertheless, the limited powers of the House of Lords means that governments often get it their way. Um, and so um, we can also perhaps conclude that there is a deficit here. Parliamentary democracy is not necessarily working as it should, or it doesn't work particularly well when there are strong majorities and we just happen to be in an era where we don't have strong majorities. Um, let's now turn to the other form of the other two forms of democracy that we're going to discuss. We've looked at parliamentary democracy. Now we're going to look at liberal democracy and how it operates in the UK. Um, so um, this is the fourth um, sort of feature that we're going to examine. In most Western democracies, liberal democracy sits alongside representative democracy. Liberal democracy has a number of attributes, including a free press and media. The government does not control what newspapers print. In a liberal democracy, therefore, the government is limited in how it interferes in your life and it follows the rule of law. That's a key pillar of the UK constitution, which means that no one is deemed above or below the law. That means that even politicians can be prosecuted for breaking the law or they can be questioned by police, as Tony Blair was um, after the cash for honour scandal. Um, by extension, corrupt practices are punished. Several MPs were forced to resign over the expenses scandal and David Chater, uh, among others, a uh, former Labour MP, was imprisoned uh, over this. In June 2017, the Conservative candidate for South Tanit, um, a member of his staff and a Tory election organiser, were charged over allegations of illegal election spending during the party's 2015 campaign to win that seat. Uh, that demonstrates that liberal democracy is working well because corruption is punished. Any liberal democracy also requires the protection of civil liberties, such as the freedom to demonstrate. The Human Rights Act allows citizens to use UK courts to protect their rights under the European Convention on Human Rights, not an EU body, by the way. More on that in another podcast. Um, let me give an example of how people have accessed their rights using the Human Rights Act. An elderly couple were reunited after courts ruled placing them in separate care homes infringed their right to a family life guaranteed by the ECHR and that local authority had to then place uh, that elderly couple in the same care home. 
Meanwhile, the Freedom of Information Act allows citizens to request information that the government holds on them, and journalists have been able has have been able to use that act to request information on things like sensitive arms deals to Saudi Arabia and so on. Um, even if they haven't always been successful in getting that information, the act exists um, and uh, can uh, help journalists uh, in pursuing the truth uh, and speaking truth to power. Um, so all of these attributes, whether it's a free press, whether it's a limited government, whether it's uh, rules that are followed through the rule of law, whether that is uh, um, ensuring that rights are protected, whether that is um, ensuring that corruption is punished, it appears that the UK has a thriving liberal democracy. Or does it? The government is neither as liberal or as limited as it ought to be. Stuart, Re Stuart Weir writes that the rule of law is what the government says it is. What that means is because the government uh, can dominate parliament often with strong parliamentary majorities as a result of first past the post, um, it can control what the law is um, because parliament writes the law and government dominates it. Too much power as well is in the hands of the prime minister. They can use the so-called royal prerogative, these undefined powers that passed from uh, the monarch to um, the prime minister um, and that includes uh, their role as commander-in-chief of the armed forces and their ability to negotiate treaties. Uh, for example, Gordon Brown used the royal prerogative to send extra troops to Afghanistan and Cameron initiated military action against Libya before there was a vote before, that's important, before there was a vote in parliament to authorise it. So he did it without parliamentary authority. The Freedom of Information Act is incredibly weak. It was watered down by the government and has uh, been watered down further since. The Guardian uh, was not allowed to publish details about Saudi arms deals, as I mentioned earlier. The Human Rights Act is under threat, as the Tories have persistently threatened to replace it, um, certainly um, in the manifestos of 2010 and 2015. So the perception also of corruption is growing with the cash for peerages affair and the expenses scandal, um, and also... Um, the um, problems with funding uh, the Vote Leave campaign um, and the sense that maybe there was something dodgy going on there. So therefore, we can conclude um, that maybe liberal democracy is not as thriving in the UK as it needs to be. Let's now turn to that other form of democracy we're going to look at direct democracy if you've got a good smattering of direct democracy it means you are involving your involving your citizen in citizens in decision making in recent years there has been an increase in direct democracy in the uk seen most obviously with the number of referendums that have been held including on scottish independence in 2014 and on changing the electoral system in 2011 Yet referendums aren't the only avenue for greater public involvement in decision-making. The right to recall wayward MPs has been introduced. Um, online consultation by government is now routine, um, as shown when the London Mayor consulted, consulted on banning smoking in pubs. Uh, there's also the possibility for ground-up pressure through the explosion of e-petition use. However, while there has been an increase in the use of direct methods of democracy, including referendums, the quality of representative democracy has suffered since referendums have undermined the legitimacy and authority of Parliament. In, our, in the Article 50 vote, MPs largely voted in favour of giving the Prime Minister authority to signal Britain's withdrawal from the EU, 
Um, even though many of those MPs initially voted to remain um, in that referendum, suggests that they were essentially, essentially just simply following through on that referendum result, or at least attempting to. Things have changed since then. Um, but doesn't that mean that Parliament is simply following rather than shaping public discourse? And here, I think the problem with democracy is laid bare in the UK, because you might have lots of one particular type of democracy, but that might interfere with another type of democracy. So the more direct democracy you have, you might say, well, that shows we don't have a um, de democratic deficit. But if that comes at the expense of deliberation, of careful consideration of bills, of the parliamentary procedures that have been in place for many, many years, um, of the job of the MP, which is to represent um, their constituency, then maybe we've got one democracy colliding, one type of democracy colliding with another type of democracy, which has the net effect of undermining democracy in the UK by producing more tension, uh, both in the political system and uh, in, in society. So after the break, we're going to be talking about devolution and we're going to be talking about participation. See you then. For a democracy to be in surplus, for it to be healthy, um, requires some amount of local decision making. And in the UK, this has been expanded through devolution. What is devolution? It is the transfer of power from central government to regional and local bodies, such as the Scottish and Welsh parliaments. Greater Manchester, for example, now has an elected mayor as part of a Northern Powerhouse scheme with similar powers to the Mayor of London. This has been an ongoing process, this process of devolution for the last 21 or so years. Um, however, devolution has created regional tension and uneven rights. For example, there is no meaningful devolution in England. Um, devolution has been asymmetric. Therefore, you could argue that Scottish voters have greater representation. They have a member of the Scottish Parliament and they also have a member of Parliament in Westminster, whereas voters in England uh, do not have similar arrangements. The metro regions, um, or so-called, um, have different powers um, or differing powers and small budgets. Some 85% of local council budgets come from central government which direct the councils on how they want them to spend that money. Is that real local decision making or is that government um, pulling the strings? Um, thus, the democratic ideal of having decisions taken at a local level as possible is far from reality. The UK remains the most centralised state in the developed world. Now let's turn to our final um, feature that we're going to be looking at. There are many other features we can examine, but we're going to uh, look uh, lastly at participation. And as I said previously, there is another podcast on this, so look it up. Um, as is the case with any democracy, healthy participation of citizens in both decision-making and electing decision-makers is vital to maintain legitimacy. There is some evidence that participation in politics is increasing, especially when looking um, at 
non for the non-traditional forms of participation people joining pressure groups and signing e-petitions such as the one to prevent trump receiving a state visit traditional forms of participation such as voting has also um, appeared to have made have also appeared to have made a comeback turnout at the 2015 general election reached uh, 66% and rose to 69% in 2017 referendums on big matters like the scottish independence uh, plebiscite and Brexit on Brexit uh, topped over 70% turnout. However, many of the problems outlined in the uh, previous sections on this podcast, especially the electoral system, have contributed to voter apathy. General election turnout is low compared to other democracies. Um, there was only 61% turnout in 20, 2005, 65% turnout in 2010. Um, and arguably collective civic engagement is declining. Only 1% of the electorate as well are members of a political party. It's too early perhaps to suggest there has been an increase in participation post-Brexit. There has been an, in, an increase in anger, um, but um, once that issue is dealt with in one way or the other, um, will we still still see you know, the level of interest in, say, e-petitions and, and the rest of it. Um, I'm not entirely sure. So, after the break, we will make some conclusions. Here are some tips. The mark of any good essay is for the conclusion to be predictable. What would you think my conclusion would be after hearing this podcast i hope that you think my conclusion would be to say that the uk is in a democratic deficit that it is in in many ways uh, in a democratic crisis um because my counter arguments were always negative i would talk about a feature and then i would um dismiss that um, and say actually that isn't working as well as you think it is um, so when if you go back to this section on uh, free and fair elections I describe what they were and then I talked about the uh, failure of first past the post to produce proportional results um, therefore um, I think it's fairly obvious what my conclusion is um, and and it's obvious from the counter arguments that I've used. So my, my tip to you is in any essay to, is to ensure that your counter arguments are what you think um, and that you spell out what you think in the beginning of your essay. Uh, you give the contrasting argument at the start of each paragraph and then you dismiss it with your own counter arguments uh, that should match what you said in the beginning in your introduction and then you get to your conclusion at the end and you just simply summarize um, what your essay um, has said now if um, I was writing an essay therefore um, my conclusion would be that the UK is in a democratic deficit that um, pluralism is just a theory not the reality um, that uh, the electoral system is deeply unfair that the fusion of powers affects the workings of parliamentary oversight um, that the government is neither as liberal or as limited as it ought to be and that direct democracy has presented huge problems for representative democracy as shown through Brexit that devolution is um, unevenly applied 
um, and that the UK is still too centralised and finally that it is too early to say that the UK's participation crisis is over. So my view, um, by simply repeating um, my counter arguments, uh, is fairly obvious that the UK is in a deficit. That does not mean to say that you have to think that. Uh, you can argue it in completely the other way, um, but in which case you need to flip round those counter arguments um, and um, act accordingly. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please uh, do tune in to our next podcast, which will focus on some of the ways to fix UK, um, the UK political system. Until next time, goodbye.